Hello and welcome to the Neshama Project podcast where we explore spiritual tools for human thriving. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. This week we have a special episode. We are continuing our exploration of the idea of the Sitra Achra, the other side, the sinister, the evil in Jewish tradition and in Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism and in the Zohar, the central text of Jewish mysticism, in honor of the Hebrew month of Adar, which is the month that we are currently in, which contains the holiday of Purim, where we celebrate victory over Haman, who is an evil character who we are being oppressed by and might be destroyed by, but then in the end, with the help of Esther and Mordechai, we end up defeating. And on the Shabbat before Purim, this past Shabbat, we read the passage which tells us to blot out the memory of Amalek, to remember to blot out the memory of Amalek, who was an evil nation that attacked the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt and attacked only the weak and those who were moving slower, the young and the, and the old. And so we remember to blot them out, to blot out their name, to destroy them on Purim. And the legend is that Haman, uh, who is this evil character, is a descendant of the nation of Amalek. But ultimately, the teaching is about evil that is inside of ourselves and blotting that out. And so in honor of the month of Adar, which discusses this confrontation with evil, we are studying texts about the Sitra Achra, about the other side. And the text sheet this month was provided by Professor Nathaniel Berman, who is the Rachel Varnhagen Professor of International Affairs, Law and Modern Culture and Religious Studies at Brown University. He provided us the text sheet that we read on the last episode of this podcast about the Sitra Achra. And in this episode, I got to sit down and interview him about the Sitra Achra. And we had a fascinating conversation where we explored evil and evil within the divinity itself and evil that is within the divinity, with it, which is also within each of our own psyches. And we explored coming face to face with difficult things, the difficult emotions, the difficult thoughts, the difficult feelings that we have within ourselves and elevating them to their holy source as a spiritual practice. We touched on how this is a practice in Buddhism as well as Hasidism, where thoughts and feelings and sensations that might be destructive or difficult are not ignored but are brought into awareness so that we can. It was a fascinating conversation and frankly one of my favorite that I've had on this podcast. I began the conversation as I did with several of my other interviews of 
Kabbalah scholars by asking Professor Berman how he became interested in Kabbalah. And he told me that he grew up Orthodox and he didn't really find a philosophical view in Orthodoxy that appealed to him, in particular with their approach toward evil in the world and being from a family of Holocaust survivors toward the evil that was perpetrated in the Holocaust. Professor Berman left Orthodoxy after spending a year studying in yeshiva, and he explored other spiritual paths until he finally discovered Jewish mysticism. Let's hear it from him. He left Orthodoxy when I was around 20 after spending a year in yeshiva in Israel. And uh, it was only a few years later after exploring, looking for spirituality and Buddhism and various other kinds of, of spiritual practices in other traditions that a friend of mine suggested I look at the Zohar, that maybe I could find the kinds of things that I've been looking for in that. And I opened, bought a copy of the Zohar, opened it up, and was astonished just astonished at the richness of the, uh, of the text, of the imagination, of the uh, li limitless human possibilities that it contains. And I was just flummoxed that I had not been taught any of this in all my years of formal Orthodox education. Um, and since then, which was about 40 years ago, I not one day has passed when I haven't opened the Zohar um, eventually I started teaching it and writing about it. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the personal story. Um, there's a more, uh, philosophical story I could tell, uh, but maybe we'll, maybe I'll get to that more when we talk about the Sidra Ahar. So can you talk a little bit about your academic background and how you came to Kabbalah academically? So I, I, uh, my first, uh, advanced degree was, a uh, as in law, I have a JD and I was a law professor for 20 years and with a specialty in international law, um, where I focused on nationalism and ethnic conflict in the 20th century. Um, and, uh, meanwhile, I was always studying the czar as a private thing, really completely a private activity on my, on my own. And at some point I, uh, started getting into with other people and realized that while I was teaching law, a whole really fascinating academic field in Kabbalah had flourished while I wasn't looking. Uh, and I started getting in touch with people. I started doing adult education teaching. Um, and eventually I decided to get a mid-career doctorate in Jewish studies. And I wrote a, a dissertation on the Zohar, on the Sitra Ahra, on the demonic. Uh, and now I've been teaching it and writing in the field for the last, uh, since I got my doctor, which is about, uh, about nine years ago. Wow. So one more question, um, as by way of introduction, which is a question that I have also asked to the many of the other scholars I've interviewed, which is how do you balance the academic study of Jewish mysticism with the practical integration of it into your own spiritual life? Um, that is a really good question. Uh, and I think that everybody who does this 
not as a purely academic pursuit, has a very different answer to it. Um, I think that in my own case, because I, I only did it academically uh, fairly late in life, um, it was always for me primarily about a, a spiritual practice and about a deepening of my understanding of Judaism and of God and of the cosmos and of other people and of everything. Um, and the academic thing was more of a vehicle uh, uh, to be able to teach it. Um, that said, I've been an academic for 35 years, uh, and, and uh, I definitely have approached my writing in the field in a very, very academic way. My first book, on the Czars, a very academic, very theoretical work. I hope it's uh, also enlightening and rich uh, and original. Um, I'm currently writing a book that is intended more for a wide audience, um, that is more like the kind of adult education I do. And the kind of adult education I do is, is both, um, I try to make it be textually rigorous, but also I'm, my main goal is an existential reaching out to my students. Um, in my own life, um, I would say that without uh, the Kabbalistic understanding of Judaism, I really wouldn't practice Judaism at all. Uh, and I don't, I wouldn't even begin to compare myself to any great figure in Jewish history, but there's a famous line from an early Hasidic master of Infus of Koritz who said, quite explicitly, he said, uh, he thanks God for creating him in the era when the Zohar was revealed to the world because the, it was the Zohar that kept him within Judaism. Um, and uh, while I certainly wouldn't compare myself to him, I really do feel the same way. Um, that there really is, it's really is now the way I understand things. That said, uh, in part because I'm no longer orthodox, because I do have this critical academic perspective, I feel free to pick and choose. There are parts of Kabbalah which I, I find unacceptable in a whole variety of ways. Um, and I don't hesitate to criticize them and to jettison the parts that I, I find irredeemable. <laughs> and those parts that I do find irredeemable, I try to redeem them in, in various ways. Great. Thank you so much. Would you like to now begin our study of the text sheet that you prepared? I would love to. And, and maybe I could preface it by saying sort of also sort of a somewhat autobiographical thing about my interest in the Sitra Afra. I'd say autobiographically, it really has to do with growing up in a Holocaust survivors community um, at a time when basically I, I had no friends who didn't have at least one parent who was either a survivor or a pre-war refugee. Um, and uh, I was a child in the 1960s and 70s, and my community was totally suffused with obsessing about, for obvious reasons, what had happened uh, during World War II. And I found the answers profoundly um, unsatisfying um, and even uh, dishonest in many ways. Um, the explaining away, the apologetics uh, I found it completely unsatisfying and a refusal to confront both the existential and theological problems caused by the existence of evil um, in the world and the horrible suffering that people around me had had experienced. Um, and I, when I started studying the Sitra Afra in Kabbalah, I said, aha, this is a much more honest even though it's mythological and wild and fantastical and hallucinatory, at the same time, paradoxically, it seemed much more realistic and really facing 
the problems head on. Um, and uh, that's why I, I really dedicated my study of art really to focus on this and to teach about it and really to try to get to convey, look, here's a canonical Jewish text that really does doesn't seem doesn't seek to explain evil away, but seeks to confront it and and try to understand how we're supposed to grapple with it. This reminds me of the spiritual practice of being present with what is. Even if it's something that's negative and and scary and and anxiety producing. And when we avoid those things, they'll just come back with a vengeance. But the essence of the practice is to be present with those things and breathe through them and not avoid them, but not to act them out either. Yeah, I want to say, talk about that for 10 hours. So the central paradox about evil in the Zohar and, and a lot of other Kabbalistic texts is that on the one hand, they uh, could squarely confront the existence of evil don't try to deny it the way uh, the Raman does. Um, but on the other hand, they also want to say that everything comes from the same place. And what they're trying to wrestle with is this paradox that absolute enemies can also be, um, in a way, siblings or even twins. And they don't want to lose either side of the paradox. Either side. So not to simply say, well, it's all for the good in the end. They reject that. No, actually it's not. Virgil is evil. But they also don't want to lose sight of the fact that um, the Sitra Afka, the other side, is the other side, two sides of the same coin. So they don't want to lose either side of that paradox. And it is it is a very, I think a very honest, but looking at it, it's also very, very unsettling. Because it means that the uh the other, the absolute other, is also in some way part of oneself. Um, and that is a very unsettling idea. And in terms of spiritual practice, as I'm sure you're aware, this has then was developed into a specific spiritual practice in early Hasidic texts and the doctrine of alien thoughts, which is, I assume, that what you're, you've been referring to, um, that when you meditate, actually they say when you pray, all kinds of thoughts, disturbing thoughts may arise within you. And in these early Hasidic texts, they said those thoughts, that is the Sitra Afra within you. Those are the parts of you that have fallen into the other side and have actually become part of the demonic side and they remain inside of you. And the suggestion or the, the instruction in these early Hasidic texts is not to chase those thoughts away, but rather to do tikkunan, to see, to somehow reintegrate them into the holy side. So if they are, and the examples they always give, they always give examples of illicit lust. And they say, it's fallen, this illicit lust or, 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 or uh, uh, you know, uh, unacceptable sexual thoughts, not to chase the wit, but say, actually, they are a fallen dimension of love. And to somehow see it as, see if you could do tikkun on it and reintegrate it into divine love. And they have the same idea about, about violence, lots of violence. These are ideas about power and, and, and majesty 
that have fallen into the evil side. And the idea is to somehow reconnect them with power for good or divine power, divine majesty, divine glory. Um, and it's a, it's a complete spiritual practice and it's a very difficult spiritual practice. They, uh, after the first generation or two of Hasidism, the Hasidic, uh, Rebbe starts saying, this is not to be done by everyone. This is only for the Rebbe. It's too dangerous. And this doctrine was sort of, it wasn't exactly censored, but it was discouraged, uh, for the, for the great mass of people. So only the Rebbe can undertake this task. But I think it's one of the most profound teaching of Hasidim. It's all over early Hasidic text. Um, and uh, a footnote would be it, it's not, not I don't think it influenced uh, psychoanalysis, but it's clearly anticipation of some of the best teachings of Freud, uh, that through free association, all kinds of things come up. And if you have to figure out how these, how these thoughts, which are alien to the, to the person during the free association, how they could be reintegrated into their personality. Um, and the, the similarities are very striking, um, although it's very hard showing the influence, but the similarities are very, very striking. And so it's a difficult practice, uh, but I think a very profound practice. In Buddhism as well, there's the idea of a near enemy. The idea is that uh, these sort of negative uh, qualities or destructive emotions have an actual positive side and positive emotions have a negative side. So for example, love, the near enemy of love might be lust or it might be um, greed or it might be um, attachment. Yeah, that less, that basic, the, the, that moral that you've mentioned is, is really teaching of the Zohar. Actually on this very surf sheet, which we'll get to in a bit, um, this famous teaching, there's no light except that which enters from darkness and there's no good except from evil. And, uh, and so forth, right? This idea that, the you know, that it, it's always about a, a sense of emerging, um, emerging from below to above, emerging from, from sin into, into goodness, um, emerging from darkness into light. Uh, that is a, a deeply rooted teaching, uh, uh, in the Zohar, uh, and really has much older roots. I mean, it even has roots in rabbinic literature, uh, Many, many roots from the literature, a number of different stories. Um, so let's dive into your wonderful text sheet. So the first one, um, you started with the biblical uh, period, uh, was from Kohelet 714. Um, on a good day, be good, be in the good, and on an evil day, behold, even this confronted with this has, hath made the Elohim. Yeah. So, and by the way, this is my translation. I've translated in a way that I think is the way the Kabbalists understood this verse. Um, and, uh, let's put it this way. In, in the, in the Tanakh, there are many different ideas about evil. And I came two quotes here that I think are related to each other. But of course, the other places in the Tanakh, there are lots of different ideas. Um, if we look at Kohelet here, um, Kohelet is, at least in this, in this verse, he's, uh, saying, look, God has made it all right. Uh, and, and an even more famous passage, of course, in Kohelet is to everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. 
uh, to quote the famous English rendition of it, the time to be born, the time to die, and so forth. The idea of accepting the 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 manifold dimensions of life. Um, this and this verse is very much uh, in that vein, although in, a, in its sharpest form. Um, the idea of saying God has made good as well as evil, and 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 the thing that I really want to focus on here is something that appears in the Hebrew that doesn't appear in most translations, but which I made appear in my translation, where it says in Hebrew it says, and I translate it as, even this confronted with this, that's, most of the translations don't have, that repeat the word this, although it's repeated in English. The reason I do it is because the Kabbalists constantly quote this verse. And for them, it's incredibly important that it's the same word because the Kabbalists are always pointing out that everything that exists on the good side it exists on the evil side, and they sometimes even have the same names. Um, and so, this confronted with this very important that, that, that there's their synonyms at the same time as their exact opposites. No, I'm sorry, not synonyms. They're homonyms and opposites. Same exact word, in its first occurrence, it's about good. In the second occurrence, it's about evil. Um, the other thing I did with the translation, um, although the, what the verse means is that God has made good as well as evil, um, if you actually read it and you just translate it in the order that it's written in Hebrew, I, I translate it as hath made the Elohim rather than the Elohim hath made because I also think, and I think uh, this is what I try to show in my book on the Sitra Ahra, is that what we mean by God is a product of a struggle between the holy side and the demonic side, and that God emerges out of this struggle rather than precedes it. And I can translate this somewhat provocatively uh, to make that point. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So um, let's move, move forward because uh, I want to get through all the texts today. The second one is from Isaiah 45.7. Yotzer or shalom ra. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I yud do all these things. So this is a this verse at one level has a similar uh, lesson as the other one in the sense that the idea that God creates good as well as evil. Um, and the reason I gave this is because for people uh, familiar with the daily liturgy, the daily Jewish liturgy. They know this verse, although in a somewhat different form. Every morning we say, Blessed are you, God, who forms light and creates darkness, makes peace, and then we see and creates all things. Um, and we say this blessing every single morning. And most people who say it don't realize that the word all things, that God creates all things, is actually a euphemism for evil. And it's actually a very disturbing verse. Um, but because of the substitution of the word all things for evil, uh, people don't really know what they're saying. Um, the verse is very honest. Whether or not you accept this theology, at least it's honest. I create good, I create evil, says God. Um, and deal with it. Faith, that's what Isaiah, that's what this verse in Isaiah is saying. Um, and... Uh, um, that's why I gave this verse because of its honesty. Beautiful. And, and, um, I, I guess that leads us right into the next one from the Talmud. 
uh, 11, 11b about the euphemism. Yes. So the Talmud says, it says, you know, we, we say this blessing every morning, but we don't say creates evil. We say creates all things. And, and the Talmud says, why do we do that? And they say it's a euphemism. They, the, the, the Aramaic term is lishnam aliyah, which means elevated language. Simply means a euphemism. But that's, that's the meaning of that blessing. And, uh, and, uh, I think that actually would be, um, it would make morning prayer more of an intense, fraught, honest, uh, experience. Uh, if, if people would remember what they're really saying here every morning. But, but you don't think, you don't think the rabbis meant to, to take out the reference to evil here. You think that they were just keeping it, but in a, in a sort of a muted way. It's hard to tell, right? It's hard to tell. I mean, they, you know, it seems to be by the time this passage of the Talmud was written, we can speculate about what exact century that was. Apparently that was the practice. So they're, they're already, they're, they're not saying this passage is question is asking question about an established practice of saying, blessed are you God who, you know, forms, forms life, creates darkness, makes peace and creates all things. Apparently that was already the practice when this passage was written. And they're just saying, why do we do this when we know what, what verse it's from? So uh, it's, it's very hard to tell the original people who made, who made that change, what they had in mind could be anything. Um, certainly the authors of this passage fully recognize, uh, that, that that's what it means or that this is a euphemism, but I mean, who knows? I mean, what, what is certainly true is that probably 95 or more percent of the people who say it every morning don't realize what, what the origin of it is. Um, and I think that's unfortunate simply because it's such an honest, again, you could agree with it and you could disagree with it, but it's certainly honest and, and it doesn't try to gloss over. It, it's very nice to think of God creating all things until you read the newspaper or until you walk out on the street and you see homeless people or until you, you, you turn on the TV, you see wars, hatred, and you think, wow, it creates all things. Mm, maybe that's not such an uplifting notion. Um, and I think this is a very, it's a very honest verse, again, whether or not one agrees with theology. All right, let's move on to Maimonides because he pretty clearly says evil doesn't exist. Right. So this is the, Maimonides is uh, the kind of approach to evil that you get in Maimonides, what I grew up with. Uh, and it takes various forms. There's a, Maimonides gives it in its most rigorous philosophical form. Um, but there are a number of books of more popularized forms of it. I mean, Maimonides been drawing on, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, forms of Greek philosophy, uh, that were around at his time that he mostly, uh, 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 drew from Islamic philosophy, um, neo Aristotelianism, Neoplatonism. Um, he had this idea that evil was absence or what philosophers call a privation, that being is good, and it's where being it sort of peters out. That's evil. But it, it, when he says evil doesn't exist, he actually, it's actually a rigorous philosophical proposition. Um, he's not saying, uh, like, like the, the worst kind of uh, ap apologetics for the Holocaust said, well, you know, it looks really bad to us, but 
you know, if you were God, you'd see it was for a greater good. I not mean, I think that is the most obscene form of apologetics that I that I, I can't even listen to without screaming. Um, it is really, really the worst form. Um, that's not what Maimonides is saying. Maimonides is giving a different kind of argument, a real uh, a philosophical argument about being and non-being. Amen. And uh, it, it, it goes beyond the, the scope of this podcast, um, but he's not telling us to look something evil and think that it's good, although maybe he says that kind of thing also. Here is much more of an idea that is something that is evil is not fully existent. And that's literally what he says in this passage. Right? He says, all evils are absence. Right? Uh, oh, and then I say I forgot to translate the last phrase. Um, and it, the, the last phrase is, and it is not appropriate to speak of making in relationship to them. You don't make evil. Evil is only a withdrawal of action, a withdrawal, a withdrawal of being. Um, and uh, far be it for me to challenge my Maimonides philosophically, but certainly existentially, I found this as a child, even as a child, uh, I found it completely unacceptable, um, given the real reality of evil and, and the stories that 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 I grew up with, um, and that anyone could. Uh, I find out just by reading a newspaper, traveling around the world, walking around the city, um, the reality of evil and uh, the the almost irrelevance to me of this kind of philosophical argument and in its more popularized form, the obscenity of these arguments, or the obsc moral obscenity of denying evil uh, in, in the face of what we know goes on in the world every day. Um, so I give this as for Maimonides of the foil. Um, this is what I rejected. This is part of what turned me off of or is of the modern orthodoxism I grew up with and what made me uh, uh, so fascinated with Kabbalah was its rejection of this approach. And let me say that it's not just in orthodoxy, right? That This reminds yep. me very heavily of Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionism. That's true. And, and I think it's you know, very much under the influence of Maimonides, either directly or indirectly. Um, but the power of, I mean, great power of Maimonides and tradition in general and every aspect of it is, is can't be uh, overstated. And, uh, and that influence is very, very strong in, in all, all kinds of apologetics, um, uh, basically denying the, the ontological reality of evil. Um, uh, is very much operating in one way or another, either on the influence of Maimonides or the influence of the kind of Greek philosophy that, that he was, himself was drawing on. All right, let's get into the Kabbalistic texts now. Um, do you want to start by just referencing the Sefer Habahir? God has an attribute yeah. whose name is evil? Yeah, so the, the first passage in the Kabbalistic uh, uh, section of this uh, of this collection of texts is from the Sefer Habahir, which is usually known as the first Kabbalistic text that we have, although uh, uh, recent scholars problematize that in a number of ways. Anyway, this thing started appearing in in southern France and Provence uh, sometime in the late 12th century. It's a fragmentary text. It's clearly composed of different strands that were reworked, perhaps in the Rhineland, perhaps in, in itself. Um, 
And it really is uh, 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 a very uh, um, overtly uh, Kabbalistic text, but overtly mythological text that doesn't seem to be at all worried about the philosopher's uh, reservations. Um, and this, uh, this passage that I've given here is one of the most astonishing passages in this work. And it really does follow very closely on uh, the kinds of things we saw in Isaiah, where God says, I create evil. Here, here it takes it up one step further. It says, God is an actor whose name is evil. Shall I, shall I read the passage? Yeah, please. For the blessed Holy One has an attribute whose name is evil. And it is on the north side of the blessed Holy One, as it is written from the north, the evil will commence upon all the inhabitants of the land. That's a verse of Jeremiah. And what is this one attribute? It has the form of a hand with many messengers, and the name of all of them is evil, evil, though there be greater and lesser ones among them. And any evil inclination of a human being comes from there. And why is it on the left? For it has no authority in the world except in the north. Now, you, I could teach a whole course on Kabbalah from these lines. Um, the number of things we can see, of course, the idea that God is an attribute and his name is evil, certainly theologically is very shocking, although it, I imagine it was not shocking to the author of the verse in Isaiah. Um, here, the word attribute is what later Kabbalists, slightly later Kabbalists call spirot. It's one of the structures of the divine. Um, the other thing we notice about this passage is that God is not some abstract, uh, it's not some abstraction. God has a geography. God has a north and a south, a left and a right. Uh, the divine realm is a complex realm. Right? Um, not the abstract unity of Maimonides or of uh, a popular imagination. Um, this is a God that's is very, very complicated. Um, it's a whole realm. It's a whole divine realm. Um, it also... Uh, it also, it seems to evoke the existence of an entire realm of evil, a hand with many messengers. And the name of all of them is evil, evil, though there be greater and lesser ones among them. It's an entire realm of evil with messengers, with actually figures, persona, who are operating in that realm. And that entire realm is part of God. Um... Very, very uh, unapologetic, classic, but here, very unapologetic, very in-your-face, deal with it. Um, and uh, uh, very honest, to my mind. Very mythological and very honest. And then one more thing, one last thing here. At the end it says, why is it on the left? For it is no authority in the world except in the north. Now that suggests that the divine realm is at war with itself or is intentional with itself. There is this side of the divine realm, which is evil, which only has a limited jurisdiction. Whatever the north and the left mean here, it seems to have a limited jurisdiction. There are other realms where evil doesn't, doesn't prevail. That means that the divine is a, is a realm of, it's a split realm. Split between north and south, right and left, good and evil, it's split. And there's no attempt here actually even to unify it. 
in slightly later Kabbalah, the whole goal become to unify the divine realm. And this again relates to your concern with the spiritual practice and my concern with spiritual practice. And the Kabbalists concerned with spiritual practice. Kabbalists always begin any ritual uh, act with a kavanah that says, for the sake of the unification of the divine realm, for the sake of the unification of the blessed holy one, the Shekinah, the two first two letters of the Yudhei with the last two letters of the Yudhei it's all about us trying to help unify the divine realm because the divine realm is split. And this passage from the Bahir has it all. This, these three lines, it's actually in Hebrew, it's three lines. I could teach a 10 year long course in Kabbalah and never reference any text except for these three lines. It's all there. By the way, the one more thing I want to mention here related to the later uh, Hasidic teaching of, uh, of uh, elevating alien thoughts is towards the end here, it says, any evil inclination in a human being comes from there. So this is a really, really interesting idea. And again, the opposite of some apologetics. I think sometimes people say, where was God during the Holocaust? And the answer is, the question is not where was God, but where were human beings during the Holocaust? Which always seemed to me like a deflection. Well, we know where human beings were. They were doing horrible things. Now, where was God? But this flips it around. Here it says that to the extent that a person does evil, they are participating in divine evil. That's literally what it says. Any in the evil inclination of a human being comes from there. Right? Comes from there. So there's some kind of cosmic evil. And when we do evil, or when we experience evil desires, we are participating in a cosmic evil rather than the other way around. Um, and the Hasidic practice of elevating alien thoughts really is very consistent with this. It's the idea of, it's not just about my own narcissistic attempt to, you know, have a spiritual high. I'm participating in a cosmic struggle that ultimately is a struggle within God. It's a struggle within God. And I think that's essential to the Kabbalistic understanding of religion, is that we participate in a cosmic struggle, which ultimately is a struggle within the divine realm itself. And there are actually antecedents to this in the famous story in the Talmud, but we get to that later. Yeah, I mean, it, so there's so much here, as you said, right, that, that not only is there evil in God, but there's evil in us, and the evil that's in us is from the evil that's in God. It's so rich. The other thing I, that was just coming up for me is this um, Saturday's a special Parsha, Parshat Zahor, where he yes. talks about Amalek. Yes, indeed. Um, and maybe when it's telling us to blot out Amalek, it's telling us to blot out the Amalek that's inside of us. And, it, and within God. And within God. And let's fast forward to Monday when it's Purim, right? Which is why we are decided to do this text sheet in Adar in the first place, right? There is this idea of Adlo uh, Yada, uh, that, you, that you should yes. drink, although I, I'm not a big proponent of drinking, but that you should <laughs> get to the point where you're celebrating Purim to the point where you don't know the difference between good and evil, between yeah. uh, curse Haman and bless Mordechai. Yeah, I think that's, you know, there's, there's certainly, uh, uh, I can't remember which, in which Hasidic text, this idea that Adlo Yada, not on Purim, the idea going beyond where you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai, 
is about reaching the realm, that realm of the divine of being so very infinite, which is above good and evil. Right? That, that's certainly one reading of it. I can't remember which Hasidic text I read this in. But another idea is in which you can't describe evil as other, as purely other, because you have to recognize that the other is also within. So it's not like Mord, Haman is over there, evil guy is over there. There's the Haman within. That we all, we're all a terrain of struggle between Haman and Mordechai. And God is a terrain of struggle between Haman and Mordechai. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really the profound teaching, I think, of the Zohar. Well, let's get to this Zohar text. First text from the Zohar is 294b. Do you want to say a few words about it? I definitely want to say a lot about it. Uh, probably too much. Um, so the, this is one of the amazing things about the Zohar is its mythological imagination. It doesn't talk about it evil in the abstract. It's always personified. There are monsters, there are devils, there are demons. Um, and one of the things there are, are the, this dragon, uh, who is, uh, associated with the, uh, Tanin of the Bible when in, in the first chapter of Genesis talks about God created the great Tanin, which are sometimes translated as sea monsters, sometimes as whales, sometimes as serpents, and sometimes as dragons. But I think in the Zohar, they definitely see them as dragons. They're described as these enormous reptilian creatures with giant tails swishing and destroying. And also they have wings. So they're, and they breathe fire, a creature that breathes fire, a reptile that breathes fire and flies and has an enormous tail and is in the water. Well, that is a dragon in uh, the medieval imagination. Um, and this passage says on the second verse of Genesis, Right? We all know that the first verse of Genesis in the beginning, God created the and earth. And the third verse is God said, let there be light, and there was light. But the second verse is the disturbing verse. But after God creates heaven and earth, it says the earth was chaos and without form, um, and there was darkness on the face of the abyss, and the Spirit of God fluttered uh, uh, on the face of the waters. So this is a riff on what's going on in that second verse. And Zora sees the second verse as an allusion to the struggle between God and the great dragon, between the forces of holiness and the forces of the demonic, that was a prelude to the creation of the world. That the world couldn't be created, that God couldn't say, let there be light, until there had been this titanic struggle between God and the great dragon. So this passage says, and the earth was tobled, Genesis 1-2, Rabbi Shimon said, the companions, meaning other tablets, have studied and known something of the work of creation, but few are those who know how to allude to the work of creation through the mystery of the great dragon, of which we have been taught that the entire world unfolds only on its spins. Now, part of what's going on here is that Rabbi Shimon is saying uh, the Zohar was mostly written in Castile in the late 12th century. Some of it is from before that, a lot of it was written after that, but mostly written in Castile in the late 12th century. Um, at the same time, there was another school of Kabbalistic thought in Catalonia um, that proceeded to a certain extent. Um, and they, the school in Catalonia, although they were interested in the demonic and evil, they were much more focused on the spherot and on holiness. Um, and this is a work written 
by in Castillo saying, well, the thing that makes our approach more profound and more esoteric and really uh, not for everybody is that we really confront the demonic. We confront the great dragon. Few are those who know how to allude to the work of creation through the mystery of the great dragon. And what then follows in this passage is this really a fantastical mythological story of this struggle of God and the great dragon that goes on for pages. Um, uh, and, uh, really hooks up with some very deep themes that undoubtedly people wrote the Zohar didn't know about the deep themes in ancient near Eastern mythology about how a struggle between the creator God and a sea dragon had to happen before the world could, could be created. And uh, I have no reason to think that authors of the Zohar had any inkling about this. Um, but, uh, certainly if you read, um, uh, ancient Near Eastern mythological texts from the third century, uh, BC, and I'm sorry, the third millennium BC, you find striking similarities to this notion that creation has to be preceded by this struggle between the demonic and the divine. Um, and that's really what this, what this text is getting at here. Um, so. And the idea that, uh, we have been taught that the entire world unfolds only on its fins. Yeah. So there's an implication here that, that the world arises out of this evil dragon. Out of this evil, out of this struggle, out of this, uh, uh, confrontation. Um, in fact, there is an allusion here to actually a quote from a, from a Midrash, which is in a different context, but that's what it's sort of riffing off of. Um, it, I think I interpret this as it's only by confronting this dragon and perhaps incorporating it, can creation go forward? The creation can't go forward without this kind of, uh, 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 confrontation between, uh, between divine and demonic and that only then can creativity happen. Let's move on to, to Borja Cordovero, this from Pardes Rimonim, uh, the twin of God. Yeah, so there is an idea that begins already in the Sefer Bahir, and which goes to the Zohar and only gets stronger and stronger the next several centuries of Kabbalistic history of a mirroring between the divine realm and the demonic realm, that these are mirrored realms. And, it, and, the, and the, 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 um, the inclination to say, to really draw exact parallels becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger for centuries. Um, and people have given all kinds of explanations, uh, to this, this drive to say these realms are mirrors of each other. Some people say maybe it's Jews wrestling with the, the Christian church and sort of like, you know, seems to have some similarities, but differences and, and really the enemy, um, but grew out of the, uh, reflection on Judaism and maybe it's bad historical explanation, but I, that may be true or not true. I see it much more spiritually and psychologically, um, as this idea of really having to confront the other. And here, Moshe Cordovero, who was a, a key, a Kabbalist in the, in the explosion of Kabbalistic creativity and spot in the 16th century, um, here he sort of summarizes this idea of a parallelism or a mirroring between the divine, the demonic realm, even to say that they're twins. And here's what he says. 
says so it is now necessary to explain the matter of the klipot. Klipot are literally means husks, refers to the demonic realm throughout Kabbalistic history. They have ten spirot and seven palaces, just as the holy divine dimension does. For their relationship to the holy dimension is as a monkey before a man. And that would suggest that it's sort of a parody, like monkey see, monkey do, right? It's like that monkeys are somehow a parody of, of human beings. But then he says he makes it even more so. That's not enough for him. He says the first of the spirot of the klipot, the first level of the demonic realm is called te'omi'ab because it derives from the word for twins. And the Hebrew word for twins is to'omim. So to'omi'al really could mean the twin of God. In the sense that it has rebelled against its Lord, blessed be he, and makes itself as a twin in relationship to him. And then quotes a verse from Proverbs, which the Kabbalists like, love to quote when they talk about the demonic realm. This is like a servant when he reigns and a handmaid that usurps her mistress. It's a turning over of the natural order of things. And it is no wonder that you find the name El, which is one of the main words for God of the Jewish tradition, in relationship to the Klippot. Just as there is the name El on the holy side, so is there the El Acher, the other El, the other God. And this is, it is written, they quote a verse relating to the, uh, the, the prophet Balaam or Bilam, uh, who curses, who wants to curse the Jews, but he ends up blessing them. And he says about himself, the speech of one who hears the word of El. And the Zohar explains that this is, when he said that, he really meant to refer to the other God. Not, not the holy God, but the evil God, in, in plain English, the devil. And they have the same name, El and El Afer. People who recite the, the full Shema every morning know that in the second paragraph of the Shema, it talks about how you shouldn't worship other gods, and the word is Elohim Achirim. The same word, Elohim, is one of the holy names for God, also applied to the, to the, to the uh, 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 other gods, the gods you shouldn't worship. Um, and so this is stress on this mirroring relationship, which is very unsettling, uh, because how are you supposed to tell if, there's, if it's such a mirroring? And I think one of the profound, there are two profound things here. One is when we say we try to make people other, it turns out, when, the more you make somebody other, the more they look like you. And I think it's a very profound spiritual, political, existential, interpersonal truth going on here. Um, the other thing that is very disturbing is that we live in a confusing world. And we don't always know what to do. We don't always know what the right thing to do is. Sometimes we do what we think is the right thing to do, and it turns out to be the wrong thing to do. And the, the difficulty often of distinguishing between good and evil um, and the way in which evil tries to dress itself up as good in our world is an experience we all have. Um, I think that's part of the, the reality of human existence that, that is uh, being addressed here uh, by Moshe Cordovero and by all the Kabbalistic uh, uh, texts that he's drawing on that he influences later. Let's go now back in time to the Zohar again. Uh, this is from two, 242B, 243A, the devils emerge from divine anger. So here's where I, as I mentioned, the Zohar is, the, 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 the Bahir and also the Zohar has incredible mythological imagination. 
They're not abstract philosophical treatises. They, they think in images. They think in poetry. They think in concrete images. Um, and, uh, you know, the theological question is, how can there be evil if God is all-powerful and all-good? That's what a philosopher asks. And the philosopher answers with some abstract answer. Evil doesn't exist or something. Um, or, you know, you shouldn't worry about God, you should worry about human morality. But the Zohar also has an answer. But the answer doesn't address the philosophical question. They say, how does evil exist in a world, word, world where everything is God? Well, let me tell you how it happens. Let me tell you a story. And the story is basically a story about divine anger. And divine anger, as we know in the Bible, is always, or not always, but very, very often described as fire. Right? Divine anger is really identified with fire. And what, we, what comes out of fire? Smoke. And in this passage, what they do is they describe the emergence of the male and female devils, Samael and Lilith, as coming out of the smoke of the fire of divine anger. And it's a very, very vivid, disturbing passage. It's a story. It's not a philosophical answer. Where does evil come from? Here's where it comes from. And now I'm reading. When smoke emerges from fierce rage, that's the rage of divine anger. That, so it's coming out of the, God, of the divine, coming out of God. That smoke expands and goes from rage to rage, the one atop the other, riding on and ruling upon the other, appearing like male and female, so as to make all into fierce rage. When the smoke starts to expand, it presses from within the rage, expanding through the pressure of one point. Then the smoke of rage spreads out crookedly like a male serpent, sly and dangerous. The head which emerges and expands is a level of darkness. It goes up and down, roaming and hovering until it rests in its place by settling with another level that it issues from the smoke that emerges from rage. And he, this male devil, is called Shadow, who is also known as Samael. A shadow in another place called death, his female consort, Lilith. When the two are combined, they're called the shadow of death, or in Hebrew, Salmavet. And as we have established, these two levels join together as one. Now, what you get in this very frightening passage is, a, is the birth of the male and female devils, Samael and Lilith, where are they born from? They're born from out-of-control divine anger. When God gets angry and his anger is out of control, smoke comes out of the fire of divine anger, and that smoke starts curling around. And, it, and smoke is obviously the most insubstantial thing in the world, but because it's divine smoke, it has substance. And the substance starts curling around and becomes these figures. And I, I like to... Uh, Explain it by imagining yourself at a campfire late at night. Um, and maybe people told scary stories. Maybe you've had something to drink or whatever. And you start staring at the smoke that's coming out of the campfire. And then you start seeing figures or pictures in the smoke. And that's an experience that many of us have had late at night. Um, here, because it's divine smoke, those images that you see actually acquire a reality. And they become Samael and Lilit, and they are a divine, a, a demonic couple. And elsewhere in Zohar, it says 
the Samael and Lilith, this male-female diabolical couple, are just like, are on the demonic side, exactly like the Blessed Holy One, the Shekinah, the male and female divine figures on the holy side. And these are two couples, the opposite enemy couples, but they come from the same place. Where do they come from? They come from the divine help. Um, and uh, this is uh, a classic Zohar passage, very mythological, very vivid um, images, really appeals to the imagination um, and is a, is, doesn't try to deny the existence of evil, doesn't try to deny, deny divine responsibility for it, but talks about it coming out of God when God gets out of control angry, which as we know from the Tanakh, the Tanakh is constantly describing God as getting out of control angry um, and causing all kinds of terrible things as a, as a and consequence. And that's what's being described here. The human experience really is, you know, when we get angry, we often do things that we didn't intend to, and we bring about consequences that we didn't intend. Um, we get angry, maybe get angry justifiably, but if that anger gets out of control, it can lead to things that we don't intend and that are undo, uh, un, they, they're un, um, they can be, we can't take them back. Once our anger goes out into the world, it creates consequences that are real. And that even we say, I didn't mean to do that. Well, too late. Happened. Here you are. Um, and it, it's a very profound teaching here. So in the Zohar, there's a, there's a great passage, I didn't give it here in the source sheet, about um, the incense offering of the Ketorah. Uh, and it, the Ketorah is, in various places in the, in the Torah, associated with appeasing divine anger, for example, at the end of the Korah rebellion. Um, and it the Zohar describes it as like, you give God incense, you offer God incense. And what do people do when they, when you give them incense, they breathe deeply. The Zohar sense really, it's, it's to, it's to appease divine anger. Because when somebody gets angry, the Zohar says straight up. When somebody gets angry, you tell them to take a deep breath, right? And the incense offering is trying to induce God to take a deep breath. And, the, and it describes it as that, that, when God gets angry, he gets dissociated. He gets he gets disintegrated. His his power and his mercy and all different aspects of his personality get dissociated from each other. And by taking a deep breath, God is able to reintegrate, like we are when we take deep breaths. It's a very very striking passage, very uh, very human. That our in our role in helping God to to recenter, to reintegrate, is crucial. And that's really what crucial for, for religious practice in the Zoharic imagination. It's, it's participating in this divine struggle. Can you say a little bit about the mention of death here and the Zohar's view of death and evil? Um, in the Zohar, it's quite clear that death uh, is, is that it, again, uh, this isn't a teaching that everyone likes, but they, it's clear all over the Zohar that then death is really evil and that death is a particular reading of the sin in the garden of Eden that as a result of that sin human beings became mortal um and that mortality and sin are, are closely related to each other um and and samael is identified with the angel of death um and this idea of ultimately there should be a victory over death and that's based also on a verse uh 
uh, I can't remember if it's Isaiah or Jeremiah, at the end of days, God will swallow up death forever. Uh, and it's not a teaching that is congenial to everyone. Uh, people think one should have much more naturalistic acceptance of death, but it's certainly a characteristically Zoharic teaching. Um, and this, uh, this identifying Samael Lili with the word Salmavet, shadow of death, uh, is, is, as you rightly point out, is, is really characteristic. By the way, people listening, the word Salmavet uh, is most famous in Psalm 23, in, in the famous English translations, Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Um, that's where the, that's the most famous occurrence of this word, Salmavet, the shadow of death, as one word uh, in the Tanakh, though it appears in a number of other places as well. Um, and that's, that's the meaning they're giving it to here. And back to the spiritual practice to be able to walk yeah. with that and be present with it and not fear, right? Not give yeah. into fear, not give into hatred, not give into acting out, out your anger. Oh, so let's go to the Zohar 341B. At, um, Ten crowns above, so this, ten crowns below. Yeah, I mean, this, this passage is a, a Zoharic, uh, another statement of the mirroring relationship between the holy realm uh, and the demonic realm. Uh, Rabbi Shimon said the principle of all, just as there are ten crowns of faith above, and those crowns of faith are the ten spirot, so there are ten crowns of contaminated sorcery below. Those are the ten spirot of the demonic realm. And everything there is on earth some cling to this side, some cling to the other side. So the idea of that, that this, our world is a terrain of struggle between the divine and the demonic, and that struggle takes place within us as well as everywhere else. The other thing I would mention here is this idea that there are crowns of faith and crowns of contaminated sorcery. Um, and I think that the only thing I would highlight here is this idea that the demonic realm has power, and one can actually exercise power in the world through channeling the source of the demonic. It's not a denial of the demonic has real power in the Zohar. Um, the Aramaic is and, and I'm, I, this, my translation here is very literal. The crowns of contaminated sorcery, the idea that there's real power in the demonic and don't minimize it. So let's go to the Zohar 153a. There is right above and there is right below. And again, this is a there's a particularly poetic, and, I, and I've actually, on the source sheet, I put it in to make it look like a poem. Um, the Zohar text, it doesn't appear that way. Uh, it's really a poem about this mirroring relationship. Uh, and, and again, accentuating this, the notion of mirroring. There is right above and there is right below. There is left above and there is left below. There is right above in supernal sanctity, and there is right below on the other side. This idea that these realms are mirror images of each other in structure. Okay, so according to the second part of this quote, so we've had this idea that the demonic realm comes out of the divine, and the, in the specific example we had was of coming out of divine anger. We've had the idea of when this happens, the demonic realm congeals into this entire structure, which is a mirror of the divine. And what we have here in this, what I'm about to read now, is once these realms are constituted, they then have all kinds of relationships with each other. So they come from the same place, they're mirrors of each other, and then they have all these kinds of relationships to each other. 
And here we have basically an attack by the demonic realm on the divine realm to separate the divine couple, the, the male and female divine couple. And this is what it says. And the premise is that the, in, in the Zohar, the moon and the sun are understood as embodiments of the, uh, the female divine persona, the Shekinah, and the male divine persona, the Blessed Holy One. So there is left, and, and the left is generally associated with the female, often associated with the female, the right, with the male. There is left above in supernal sanctity, arousing love, linking the moon with a sacred sight to shine. This idea that in the Zohar it always talks about sexual arousal coming from the left side and coming from the, the feminine side. Make of that a, a what you will. There's a lot of gender stereotyping in the Zohar and, and gender roles. Um, so uh, that's only something to think about. So there's left above in supernal sanctity, arousing love, linking the moon with a sacred sight to shine. That's about this uh, nuptial sexual union between the male and female divine figures. But then there is left below, blocking love from above, preventing her, the Shekinah, from shining through the sun and drawing near. This is the side of the evil serpent. For when this lower left arouses, it pulls the moon, separating her from above, so her light darkens, and she cleaves to the evil serpent. Now again, a very physiological uh, portrayal, um, and we can say two things about this. First of all, this image that what blocks the union of the male and female divine figures is the serpent. And this is clearly a projection into the divine realm of the sin of the Garden of Eden. This idea that it's the serpent we have this male and female couple. Everything is lovely. And then the serpent comes and disrupts it. It's really is very much, very clearly, it be a rereading of the scene in the Garden of Eden of the disruption of the perfection of the Garden of Eden by the serpent as something that goes on in the divine realm itself. It's a very, very bold, audacious passage um, uh, that that recurs in a number of different places in the Zohar. And the other thing I would note here is that it would seem to be that the serpent here is female. Um, it could be read as a, a rape or a seduction of the female divine figure by the male devil, but actually if you read it carefully, that isn't really what's going on. It says, talks about a left below, and the left here is identified with the female side. So this seems to be a seduction or a something going on between Lilith and the Shina. And that seems to be what the plain meaning of this text is. And this occurs also in a number of places in the Zohar. Um, and this closeness, or what, what, what was the phrase you used? Uh, the near enemy? This closeness between both the male and female divine figures and their male and female de demonic counterparts is something that recurs in a lot of different places. And here it's going to be some kind of relationship between the Shekinah and the Lit. Um, certainly in, uh, you know, sort of uh, feminist reappropriations of Kabbalah over the last, now, at least 50 years or more, um, there's been a questioning of this, uh, of this denigration of Lit and, and an attempt to recuperate it. Uh, in, in a number of different ways. Um, and this kind of passage in which there seems to be some kind of complicity between Lilith and Shekinah is 
really interesting for what the Zohar writers meant by it, but also the way in which, say, a feminist uh, a reader might want to reappropriate and read this passage against the grain, as it were, and see this sort of alliance between these, these two female figures. So, uh, Zohar 378a, human beings can damage the divine. Yeah. So this really goes to the, uh, the question of what, what kind of religious practice emerges from the Zoharic myth. Um, and, uh, and, and both this passage and the, the next quote as well, are very similar. Um, is it that human action participates in the, in the cosmic struggle, right? And then human action can actually damage the divine. Human action can heal the divine. Um, and maybe we should read this with the next, so this one says, Rabbi Tiska says, everything is one supernal mystery to show that one who damages below damages above. And, and let's read it with the next passage. For anyone who, from a different part of the Zohar, for anyone who cleaves to the blessed Holy One and fulfills the commands of the Torah, it is though he establishes the world, the world above and the world below. And so it has been established, it is written, and you shall make them. And anyone who transgresses the commands of the Torah, it is though he causes damage above, causes damage to himself, causes damage to all the worlds. And these two passages uh, is, is what the academics call, use the word uh, fear, to describe. It's the idea of that human action affects the divine, both for good and for ill. It heals the divine, it can rip the divine apart, um, and uh, it's all one struggle, the struggle within ourselves, the struggle in relationship to God, the struggle in relationship to social justice, action of the world. It's all one struggle, and everything we do participates in all levels, the internal level, the social level, the cosmic level. Um, this is a kind of image of, of what religious practice is that's the very opposite of, say, that emerges from Maimonides, from Maimonides, God is utterly unaffected by anything we do. It's impossible for God to be affected by anything we do. Um, uh, one might even question for my modernities whether God knows the details of what goes on in the world, whether it's even a possibility for divine knowledge because of, it, of its uh, particularity and changingness. Um, and Maimonides says the whole world could be destroyed in a second and God it wouldn't affect God one bit. Um, in the Zohar, it's very different. The, the human beings, all realms of being participate in an ongoing struggle that, that occurs on all different levels. And if you do something wrong, um, you commit an act of violence against another person, you've also uh, uh, caused a damage to the divine. You've also done damage to part of the divine. Um, and similarly, if you do justice and kindness to another person, you've also caused healing to the divine. Um, and it's, as I say, the, the very opposite of a Maimonidean perspective. Um, uh, for, for the Zohar, if there is war in the world, it must be the divide is not unified. That's the Zohar's answer. Question, how can there be evil in a world where God, the God is everything? Answer, well, there must be, must be something bad going on in God if there's something bad going on in the world. There must be some rupture in God if there's rupture in the world. And vice versa. It's a reciprocal, reciprocal process. Great. So let's uh, do the last two. Um, 
Zohar 2, 135a and b, uh, the Shekhinah's weekly struggle. Uh, as we move into Shabbat, this interview, we're doing it on a Friday afternoon. Yes, indeed. So this, this is an excerpt from a, one of the most famous passages from the Zohar, and famous in some circles, um, because it has been incorporated into the Friday night liturgy of various uh, versions of the liturgy, and, uh, and the versions that are most influenced by Kabbalah in Hasidic Arab liturgies, also in North African Middle Eastern liturgies, in which right before, the, between Kabbalah Shabbat and Mariv, uh, on Friday night, this paragraph from the Zohar is recited. It starts off with the words Kagavna, uh, in the same manner as. Um, and this is an excerpt from the net. Um, and uh, it is the notion that the weekday is a, is a time of struggle between good and evil, between the divine and the demonic. And on Friday night, uh, uh, the Shekhinah, and, and therefore us, we're able to separate ourselves from the other side, at least temporarily. And I'll read this, and I, I, as you listen to it, uh, I think you will see a lot of the themes that we've been discussing over the last hour uh, in, this, in this passage. The mystery of Shabbat. She is Shabbat. She, the Shekhinah, is Shabbat. Shabbat is an incarnation of the Shekhinah. When Shabbat arrives... She unifies herself and separates herself from the other side. And all judgments pass away from her. And she remains unified in the holy light. And she is crowned with many crowns facing the holy king. And all angry rulers and masters of judgment flee and pass away from her. And there are no other rulers in the whole world and her face shines in the supernal light, and she is crowned below in the holy people, and all are crowned with new souls. So this passage brings together many of our themes, this idea of this struggle going on, both among human beings and in the divine realm, between good and evil, between the divine and the demonic. Um, and what this passage is saying is that in our world, which is a world that is this terrain of struggle, there are certain moments, certain privileged moments in which unity can be achieved. It's only temporary, but there are like these moments of grace. And one of these moments is the moment of the arrival of Shabbat on Friday night. And says the, the Shekinah is able to separate from the other side, from the demonic, and anger and judgment leave, right? And she's able to unify with her consort, with her male consort, um, and that everything is pure light. And we too are sanctified. She is crowned the holy people and all are crowned with new souls. So she is crowned in human beings. She is crowned in the holy people. And we, the people, are crowned with new souls. It's a reciprocal process. The crowning of the Shekinah by the holy people who are sanctifying the Shabbat, on the one hand, and the crowning of the human beings with their souls that come from the divine. On the other, it's a reciprocal process. We're all participating in the same struggle. We all are able to have these moments of grace, of unity, and a separation from evil, at least provisionally and temporarily. Um, and this hooks up with many of the things we've been discussing. 
It also evokes a, a, a rabbinic, a Talmudic idea that on Shabbat, we get as an extra soul, and the Shemayi Tirad, extra soul, and that it lasts with us during Shabbat, and it leaves in a Shabbat, and that's when we have spices at Havdalah because we're consoling ourselves for the loss of that extra soul. This is a reading of that. This is sort of a Kabbalistic reappropriation of that idea, saying we are crowned with new souls on Friday night in the same way that we crown the Shekinah uh, on Friday night because of this uh, provisional uh, 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 victory or provisional separation from the demonic side. And then Saturday night, it begins, the struggle begins anew. Great. So let's do the last one. Uh, and this all is to sort of flows into this last one, which is from the Zohar 2 183b. Late Nahora Ella Hahudina Fik Migo Hashocha. Yeah. So this passage is uh, uh, quite a well known passage. Um, Ellie Wolfson wrote a famous article about it early in his career. Um, and it really is about you can't achieve holiness without going through the demonic, without going through the negative sides or sinister sides. And that's true about internal spiritual struggle. It's also true about uh, engagement with other people. It's also true in religious experience. That's what it says here. Um, and it's to avoid what some people call spiritual bypassing, which is a phrase that's come into vogue in recent years. Um, the idea of, say, you're in a high spiritual place without actually dealing with the with the sinister stuff that everybody carries within them. Here's the passage. There's no light except that which is from darkness, for when this other side is overpowered, the Blessed Holy One ascends in glory. There is no worship of the Blessed Holy One except from darkness, and there is no good except from evil. When a person enters unknowing an evil way and then abandons it, the Blessed Holy One is exalted in his glory. Therefore, the perfection of all is good and evil together, ascending subsequently as good. There is no good except that which issues from evil. And I see I didn't, um, I didn't translate the last phrase, which I'll do now. It says, the last phrase is, and in this good, God ascends in his glory. And then the last, very last phrase, which is the crucial punchline, is, with that you and this is perfect worship or perfect service of God. Right? That's really the punchline here. What is perfect service of God? It's not being believed evil doesn't exist, as Maimonides would tell us. It's confronting evil and serving God with all those other sides and going through them and trying to integrate them. And we can spend a lot of time on this paragraph because the various phrases in this paragraph are not necessarily all saying the same thing. There could be like four or five different ideas, even in this short in this short thing about how to integrate or how to conduct this struggle between between the uh, good and evil. Um, uh, and what does it mean when it says there's no worship of the blessed holy one except from darkness? And and many people have uh, tried to. Uh, recuperate or, or reinterpret this as saying, actually, talking about the sacred dark. And my friend, uh, Rabbi Fern Feldman, has written about this notion of the sacred dark, uh, which I think is is really a very, very profound idea. And I think that is consistent, both consistent with many things in the Zohar and also a, re, 
a reappropriation, reinterpretation of, the, of many things uh, in the Zohar. Yeah, and back to that original point that you were making about the Hasidic practice of uh, elevating the alien thoughts, elevating the, the destructive emotions. I mean, I think this is completely in line with that practice. Yes, totally. And I, and I think there, you know, I think this is a clearly an implicit reference point for all those, all those writings. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was really fun. It was really fun for me too. I, as I said to, um, uh, Yossi Chayes, maybe you'll join me again for another episode at some point. Any time, any time, any place. I'm always ready. Beautiful. To, you know, I, I, even if I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, Ben. <laughs> let's, let, let's take a walk on the wild side, on the dark side together. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you all for joining us today. That was a wonderful conversation in honor of Adar about the Sitra Achra. That's it for the Neshama Project this week. Until next time, this has been Rabbi Ben Newman. Take care.